that people have these preconceived ideas that you know how safe they can feel in a car when there are you know shells or, or shots being fired around them and and how that full sense of security can actually be quite detrimental and harmful Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Scott King on hostile environment awareness training. So what I want to do in the conversation is look at some of the challenges of training and equipping NGOs to live and work in some of the most hostile environments on the planet. So what we're going to examine is some of the high fidelity and indeed low fidelity training, which is undertaken to achieve this. We're also going to examine some of the simulation training and realism that's used as an analogue of reality in this environment. And also, finally, we're going to look at the end result of this training and what it does to prepare people for going into hostile environments. So to do this, I have Scott King with me. Scott is a paramedic with over 20 years experience um, in both clinical operations and indeed emergency management and planning. He teaches on various courses around the world, including PHLS, Battles, uh, CBRNE, and indeed other courses such as ALS courses. He holds a diploma in, in health emergency planning and has delivered training um, in the Middle East, Ukraine, and indeed uh, in various continents across the world. Welcome, Scott, to the podcast. Hi, Owen. Thanks for having me. It's great to great to have you, Scott. Just I thought initially, if you could maybe speak to what what heat training is and what it indeed seeks to do. Uh, so heat is um, hostile environment awareness training. Um, it uh, can come in all sorts of disguises, really, um, and depending on who's providing it, it can really have a quite a different slant and take on uh, the content. Um, typically, it would be heavily militarised or by uh, former military staff or security staff um, who would teach uh, normally a week-long, highly immersive programme uh, for candidates, uh, typically maybe media, um, who are going into which traditionally would have been like military or conflict zones to report um, as more and more kind of uh, corporate responsibilities taken on uh, NGOs are looking at better training and, and preparing their staff um, and there's almost been a branch off to humanitarian training uh, in the heat environment and um, and that's kind of uh, where I've seemed to have just slipped in uh, with my experience and uh, I found myself now delivering qu quite a lot of heat training to uh, civilian, non-military NGO staff. So as you said, Scott, you know, you, you're teaching and training non-medical staff in what are kind of highly kinetic, highly dynamic environments. Could you maybe speak to the sort of the, the the trauma skills you're you're teaching and indeed maybe how difficult that is to impart on people that maybe don't have any medical backgrounds so um i started off my career really kind of with an interest in trauma um i was fortunate to uh, grow up um in cornwall where there was a, a really prominent figure paramedic who was a role model to me who set up a charity that looked at trauma training and equipment and that was known as fleet and um, I started off uh, delivering trauma training, uh, which then went on to PHLS um, in the UK. And then from that, stumbled across uh, the military world. So I'm, I'm not a serving military medic. Um, and I was very 
uh, proud to really kind of be brought on uh, as a civilian to the medical training faculty, um, which then kind of opened up a whole new area of uh, expertise of military medicine, which um, as civilian medics, um, you know, the, the vast experience that that um, is arose from theatre is is huge, and we've learned a lot. And there's numerous articles now, and it's really directing our civilian practice. Um, but um, what I found is that you need to kind of really understand your topic to simplify it in the best way. So having a lot of time and experience teaching paramedics um, or those on intercalated degree programmes uh, at Cardiff, um, having that sort of theoretical and practical skill to then really simplify it in a way that non-medics that have had no training whatsoever can understand and be effective. and. Um, it really struck home how important that is um, in December in, in Ukraine when um, the head of mission for an NGO asked me who my my best medic was on the course. And there was characteristics of uh, the, the wannabe paramilitary NGO uh, humanitarian who has got all the gear and all the Molay kit. And, uh, and I actually pointed out that it was the cleaner from Kyiv a six-year-old female who uh, ran the office and was the cleaner. And I was like, I'd go to the front line with her as a medic. So she was awesome. Um, she didn't speak any English, which was another barrier. Um, but she accepted what was being told and asked of her, and she just did it. There wasn't any question. And she was able to understand the importance of just doing those simple, basic things and not trying to get ahead of herself or try and look too far or question and really interrogate what was being asked of them. And in the early stages, that's really, really important. Um, you need to kind of be able to impart messages and, and have a student candidate that accepts and takes on what you're telling them. I think, you know, you speak to this, Scott, around how to teach some of the fundamentals of maybe uh, trauma first aid to a non-English speaking population, you know, how you need to deconstruct it and how that needs to look to be well received, understood, and indeed replicated when it when it matters. Actually, so could you could you maybe speak to the level of trauma first aid that you that you teach and it, and, and indeed how you make it immersive or, or indeed impactful? Um, so the program um fundamentally uses kind of a, a mix of my experiences, which is where I build my strength from. So um, pre-hospital trauma life support, um, British Army uh, trauma life support courses. And as we've gone more internationally, we've looked um, certainly at uh, things like TCCC, uh, which is combat casualty care, and um, the tech programmes, um, which again is tactical emergency care. Um, and they all have common generic themes that um, primarily look at the, the early management and focus upon massive or catastrophic hemorrhage. Um, and, and it's quite interesting. I'm having the quandary at the moment about should we really be uh, applying March as our primary survey approach um, and moving away from CABCDE um, in, in civilian practice um, as I'm spending more and more time um, delivering March. Um, so um, some of the fundamentals it is is 
aggressive management of, of blood loss, um, which we have been talking about almost since the Vietnamese War um, and still talking about in, in, in all the post-conflicts thereafter um, as the major cause um, of, of trauma, loss of life, um, and the biggest impact that we can have as those first responder medics, um, regardless of our skill set. And um, I don't think anybody from your audience will ever be shocked by you know the phrases of doing the simple things well and keeping it simple which is you know said time and time again um, but questions the fact that it still needs to be said and the importance of driving that home so we'll look at good tourniquet application use um, I'm, I'm very interested in obviously low um, equipment environments um, whether that's wilderness or, or combat about improvised tourniquets um, more so on the dangers of not doing it right um, and I think it's very easily talked about the improvisation of kit um, on a lot of fronts, but certainly in, in tourniquets is, is a concern of mine that if people don't have the understanding of what they're trying to achieve, actually, they can worsen blood loss in those instances. Um, trying to get people to understand that some things are beyond our skill set, even as medics, um, and that there are limitations to what we can do um, for the non-compressible bleeds. Um, but doing the basic well of good wound packing, whether that's um, hemostatic agents or non-hemostatic dressings that were being applied, um, primarily the, you know, the concept of occupying the space um, to prevent blood loss and direct pressure is, is, a, is a good key skill that we'll teach. Um, how we would improvise maybe using flutter valves or chest seals is another sort of thing that we would look at driving home. Um, Similarly, with uh, catastrophic hemorrhage, we'd look at pelvic control. So um, real makeshift use of pelvic binders using trousers, um, belts, and looking at getting normal anatomy as opposed to risking over compression, which can be achieved with some of the devices that are out on the market. Um, but bring it back to simple things, just simply pulling ankles together and, and tying the ankles first will reduce that um, that pelvic space um, on its own and, and understanding that even for quite severe catastrophic injuries you know people feel better when they're doing something when you're being treated you have a sense of reassurance and confidence that someone is doing something even though simple things will have a, a big impact um, so those are the primary kind of uh, skill sets that we would look at the next is really how we build upon teaching that in a, in a classroom scenario um, to taking it outside the classroom um, into those more novel um, environments. Um, and I'm a big key that people that um, either, you know, English isn't their first language, um, trying to learn new skills have to almost overcome, you know, a language barrier. And then there's the medical language barrier as well. So a lot of uh, hands-on uh, is a good way of overcoming those barriers and challenges. So um, simple skill sets, applying them in the environments that we're likely to come across, um, going from simple to complex is kind of how I like to build it up. And, and then fidelity increases with that. So you speak to fidelity, and I think it's a really interesting point. Like you said, the kinesthetic learning almost speaks volumes versus head knowledge and indeed maybe PowerPoint or didactic uh, learning. Could you maybe speak to the fidelity? Uh, you know, I, I'm aware on some of the courses that you run, you use uh, paintball um, areas whereby it's, you know, 
put in as an active shooter. And indeed, if people get shot, they have to treat that as real and, you know, take care of each other and do the stepwise hemorrhage control on, on each other. And indeed, putting injects into the into the simulation whereby there is there, there is a semblance of, of realism there. Could you maybe speak to the to sort of the fidelity what and what they get out of the increase in the fidelity into these these almost live uh, practice situations? Yeah, so on the programs that I teach on um, predominantly look at a, a week long theme. Um, so if we take humanitarianism as, as an example, we would look at um, developing a, a mission that they need to go and achieve, um, which then practices and, and puts them in their, their comfort zone. So an example would be that they would look to develop a, a water program or a kind of a wash program um, in an area. And we look at things like mission planning at the very early stages, how they build that, what's important. And we try and get them to then simulate going to access that mission to maybe look at negotiation uh, of access. Um, and within that, we can incorporate things like uh, checkpoints. And it doesn't have to be the high end um, uh, disaster checkpoint uh, that might come later on in the course on sort of day four or five uh it can just be the simple kind of the the practice of getting new documentations and the simple things that people that would have traveled abroad and gone through checkpoints uh would have experienced you know making sure that your documentation that your conduct and how you engage at checkpoints whether they are official or unofficial or planned or unexpected um and that um works towards building up the participants sort of um suspension of disbelief um, they then start getting into their role uh, which means that they're in a good uh, pliable sort of uh, situation ready to take on some of the other challenges that are faced uh, and put to them so we would look at things like contact drills um, how they would safely exiting and, and negotiating hazards and, and cars and um, it's um, it's quite interesting when you teach in military zones that you can fire back, and that's the first rule of combat care is win the firefight, um, which is interesting for me uh, with no military background is that I've only ever learned whether teaching civilian medicine or the police. Um, so when we were talking about checkpoints um, and not being armed, um, they have to really rely on basic, simple uh, skills and um, there's in some interesting footage uh, of the Sky News reporters uh, that were involved in a false flag uh, ambush um, in Ukraine um, and that's certainly some of the best civilian footage at the moment about kind of the risks that are being faced certainly in Ukraine but could happen um, you know globally and um, and how civilians have to respond in those circumstances um, and it's it's very uh, interesting that people have these preconceived ideas that, you know, how safe they can feel in a car when there are, you know, shells or, or shots being fired around them and, and how that full sense of security can actually be quite detrimental and harmful and the importance of um, having to take stock of the environment, what's going on and allow that muscle memory of training to get out of the car. Um, so we look at building up that mission planning through to uh, simple to complex. And, and as we do that, we then build up fidelity and the expectations of the medicine that, that they would look to try and deliver. 
Um, there is a, a good element of uh, muscle memory and, and pain memory. Uh, if you are shot, you will become better at uh, avoiding being shot, albeit with simulation or paint rounds. Um, but um, throwing in tourniquet drills at random parts of the day, really trying to hone that self-application process of getting it down to 30 seconds on, 30 seconds to apply um, compression. Um, you know, by the start of it, you can see where the, the, the thumbs are fimbling and, you know, they just can't achieve that. But certainly by the end of the week, um, those skills are highly honed, um, even in civilian practice from non-medics. Um, and once they can do it on themselves, they can then apply it to others. So looking at, you spoke about the non-medical aspects, actually, um, and indeed the, the, you know, the adage of conflict resolution, and exit in a vehicle but could we could you speak to some of the interesting aspects you you also put in around um sort of the kidnap of uh, uh of participants and and indeed sort of how you approach it how it remains learning versus just maybe a deeply traumatic experience but how how do you how, how do you sort of broach the element of, of 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 maybe kidnap and indeed maybe more the traumatic sides of of what might be um, working in in an NGO field? Um, I think a lot of uh, the candidates that are coming on the course um, have heard very mixed stories. Uh, some very positive, some distressing and traumatic um, and as I started it, it very much depends on kind of the organization that's running the training their background their insight their agenda as it were and kind of uh, how right the fix is for who's delivering your training versus what the outcomes are um, the expectations and the training uh, put into maybe military participants um, is going to be completely different to the input that's going to be required of, of civilian NGO staff. And having worked on both, um, it's really clear the difference um, in in uh, tone, threats, the, the the duration of the programme, um, because the realities of what they will face um, can be quite different. Um, so just focusing again on that humanitarian factor, a lot of the students have coming through um, potentially could already have been through traumatic experiences. And it's certainly at one point on um, every course, um, despite screening students beforehand um, and setting up things like safe words, um, which are common practice in any simulation, um, just trying to get an understanding of where the students are in their own experience. So there are some programmes where it's de-emphasised as regards a kidnapping role. In others, um, it's emphasised just based on kind of the, the candidateship. Um, and I think that's important and really key to the strength of faculty that you have working on these programmes to be able to read and understand the, the audience um, because it can be quite damaging. And um, there's normally one person that has been kidnapped. And the stories of a Nigerian doctor who was um, kidnapped by Baka Karam, who uh, was held hostage. Um, a lot of his party were unfortunately killed. And then trying to, one, use that as first-hand learning to share with the groups, but equally respecting what is coming and potentially the effects that might have on him as an individual. 
Um, so it is a high risk but high beneficial kind of important thing to do on the courses. So it certainly comes later on in the programme where we've got that understanding of the group dynamics, who we need to focus on and looking at warning signs that um, something isn't quite right. Um, even when candidates know that they're coming on a heat course and potentially are expecting it, it always surprises me the skill of the faculty which I sit on to be able to come out with the surprising element um, and that shock. And that's the, the one of the main things is, is that kind of shock of kidnap, which we will talk about and, and lecture on and, and coping strategies and things to look out for um, in yourself and your groups, as well as those kidnappers that are engaging with you. So um, it's an interesting part of the programme, I think. And, and and one that um, would be a shame to kind of spoil for future participants if we sort of explained all the details of how it's achieved um, to get that shock. Um, but yeah, we seem to manage it. So could you speak to the elements of debrief, um, how you teach debrief, how you get students to debrief, maybe even themselves, um, what, what's the, what, what does that look like? And what's maybe the transition of, of maybe you orchestrating the debrief versus imparting it and getting them to sort of self-debrief over, over the course? I think um, in the early days, at the beginning of the course, it's very heavily in, instructor-led um, and it's more typical for what your audience probably expecting with regards to like a hot debrief. And certainly ones in the ambulance service or sort of pre-hospital um, emergency care will be accustomed to in those hot debriefs scenarios um, of things that have gone well, things that have not gone well. Also picking up those immediate points that should this incident occur as our next incident or tomorrow or next, you know, what do we need to immediately address? Um, as the course progresses, the structure of that hot debrief um, is able to kind of change to a more reflective um, participant led as their confidence increases, their exposure increases and their knowledge increases. Um, so as a faculty, we can then kind of take that step back and we become almost um, facilitators of, of the group uh, self-reflection. Um, and typically we'd see then people becoming uh, highly kind of uh, reflective of things that have normally gone uh, awry and things that haven't gone well. Um, and it's just the importance of addressing and, and uh, milestoning and checking where they are compared to where they started um, because people's expectations uh, suddenly go up massively when they're in these high fidelity scenarios um, because to them it becomes very real. And by day three, you, when you're throwing in different... Uh, scenarios that are using um, either amputees in action type casualties or you know high fidelity simulating aids mannequins um, or um, meat to do procedures on um, people very much get drawn in and sucked into that that task focus which on human factors courses you know we're well accustomed to that you know the bandwidth being overloaded and kind of becoming task orientated and you can really see that um go on um, as we throw more um towards the students so yeah it's, it's good because you can really see the, the development in students on these courses um and it's a real rapid positive enforcement for me certainly as a clinician and as, a, as an educator and tutor it's really positive to see people come in uh, and quickly 
become drawn into the the sort of scenario so you know you are you've taught scott in some pretty dynamic situations you know like you said in ukraine in the middle east um and across across north africa as well and could you maybe speak to what you see as an end result of this training how how, how do people come away do they, do they do they feel more equipped um especially i think you know you spoke to earlier about delivering training when there's non-english speakers but then but but seeing them develop and indeed orchestrate some of these principles even as a result of not being able to speak the language must be quite powerful could you could you maybe speak to that so um it, i i can always remember it's such a powerful time the first time i taught in a non-native country in a language that i didn't speak um and just that sense of overwhelming like what am i doing here um a massive uh inferiority complex definitely felt fraud uh, that I, I was right to be here. And um, as the course settled, settled down, um, theatrical skills came to play and I'm jumping and running around a classroom and I'm play acting a lot more than I would normally do in, in English lectures. Um, but it soon reassured me that um, I'd got a good slide set. I knew my knowledge was was sound in what I needed to impart. Um, the slides were in native language. I didn't need to read the slides because I knew the content for where they were. Um, and my actions corresponded to the slides. And I was fortunate that we had a few broken speaking English that kind of the, the difficult terms were able to kind of negotiate. But people tend to not speak medical English it's colloquial English. Um, so I remember just this sense of fear and dread looking at these eyes in the classroom, looking at me as if to impart everything that they needed to know to get through the week. Um, but we achieved it and, we, and they did really well. And they were probably one of my best courses uh, and the outcomes were probably the highest um, because things were really had to be home to basics and to be really succinct and clear in the em emphasis of what I was trying to deliver. Um, people come away being surprised at the end scenarios that they face, um, that they've, uh, they've come out the other end. Um, and so I like to start my courses really getting an idea of what students bring, what they want to achieve um, as a mind mapping experience. You know, what is it they're fearful of? What is it they want to achieve? Um, it means you can hone some of those individual learnings to things that you may not have considered that makes it sort of pertinent to them. Um, so things like children, drowning, things like that, that I would never have necessarily thought to include. It's very easy to me include in, in courses that they get a sense of additional worth and meet their needs as learners. But to then use that to reflect back on at the end of the course and really kind of show their journey. And it's something I'm working on at the moment that we end on a slide set, set of photos and videos of kind of to show the progress to really capitalize kind of what they've gone through as a journey because um a week doesn't sound a long time but when you are in high stressful environments that's learning new skill um you know as you learn something new something old comes out of your brain um the, a week is a very long time it's almost like a week in the big brother house 
um, being on a hit course. Um, and you can see like friendships, bonds, um, you know, anyone that's gone through immersive training will tell you that, you know, those non-technical skills are just magnified. Um, so as we come into London, the conversation, Scott, just a, a final question really around if others were listening to this, wanting to develop high fidelity simulation or indeed high fidelity training, you, you've spoken to, you know, you put people through um, different aspects of um, the medical injects. So actors, uh, you use uh, training uh, aids such as pieces of meat to do wound packing. You um, there's there's high fidelity makeup. There's smoke machines. There's paintball uh, ranges where people actually physically get shot. There's there's active debriefing. There is a real semblance of reality to this. You know, an element of kidnap and using four by fours and uh, indigenous actors from from the country truly immersive actually um having been on some of these courses could you could you maybe speak to take up messages for others wanting to deliver high fidelity training and sort of this is this immersive training environment i think it's it's very topical um certainly in uk practice now um simulation is as hugely uh, over the last decade um, and, and investment is, is only I think going to increase and you can see that by you know the, the you know the courses that are you know we're doing really well at the moment have got good fellowship um, are courses that really home in on high fidelity um, and and I think to really do fidelity well you need a, a good breadth and depth of facilitators and instructing staff um, because it takes a lot of planning uh, and that prior preparation um, to come up with a scenario. Um, but equally, it's, it's to be truly immersive, it needs to be dynamic and it needs to be able to respond in real time to the events that play out. Now, typically, as experience develops in any training course or scenario, you learn common ways that people are going to approach things um, and you can anticipate those. Um, but there will be things that don't go as planned and the unexpected will occur. And that's where your faculty really will come into their own because they can respond in real time to true events and, and really make that scenario then evolve and develop uh, with the students. Um, but also from a safety point of view, having that ability to really look at the students to see how they're responding to see those non-technical skills look at when people are becoming um o overloaded they that they're beginning to burn or, or not cope because it needs to be safe you know physically safe but it's psychologically safe and it's about learning and i'm you know not in the business of, of breaking students uh, because nobody wins and people then become disheartened they don't achieve and they don't perform and and our role as as you know clinical tutors really is by getting the best out of people and and making sure that the people that i'm teaching will exceed my skill set and will become a far better clinician than me and and that's one of the reasons why i'm, I'm really looking at going into this more because you know, we've all got our own personal lives that we have to juggle with work uh, and family. And, you know, I would love to develop more um, international tools. Um, it's just a significant time away. And for me, being able to go away and deliver something in a short period of time, 
you know, in that time frame, I might sort of treat or, you know, make an impact on maybe a dozen patients in, in sort of poor conflict zones. Whereas actually, you know, my last tour, you know, we taught 160 people just off one program in, you know, key life saving skills. And I think actually justification and interest for me is that if they go on, my influence of impact is now just massively increased. So I think having a good faculty, you know, like icebergs, you know, they need to have that that hidden depth underneath to really draw upon um, is is key. And it's a program that I stumbled in, I, you know, and so I would say if this is something you're interested in, is follow it, go with it. And and I'm here um, not for any plan or career program. I'm I'm here by saying yes. Um, so I think as a rule of thumb for any program or interest that people have is is say yes and and be nice about it. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, thank you for the last half an hour. I really appreciate both your perspectives and your insight. And um, yeah, it's been it's been really informative just to get your perspective. So thank you for for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.